Well, today we are uh, continuing in our Genesis study. Now the, the weekly Torah portion has passed us by, right? And we're still, now we're in chapter 14. The weekly Torah portion is now already uh, chapters, chapters beyond us. But uh, chapter 14 of Genesis is a very interesting, very interesting chapter. Unfortunately, it's one of those chapters that you look at a couple, of, usually it's used for a couple of verses, and we read those verses, and then we make our way to other parts of the Bible. But it's very important to appreciate, actually, chapter 14 of Breshit on its own terms. And uh, that's what we want to focus on. We'll point to some things in the future, but it's here for a purpose in, in the text, and we want to understand that. So, Chapter 14 is interesting because it describes a battle. And in uh, Bible times, you, would call, you could almost call it like a world war. Uh, uh, because basically the entire region was battling. The entire region was, uh, was battling. And we see how Abraham is kind of in the, in the thick of it a little bit. Uh, and we're going to learn some really interesting things here. So... Uh, now remember, by the way, where we were in chapter 13. Remember in chapter 13 that Abraham and Lot are blessed. They both have a lot of tents, which means people around them. And they have a lot of, uh, they have a lot of um, uh, animals. And, uh, and they're basically wealthy. And the people that are their herdsmen, the people watch, you know, taking care of everything are are kind of not getting along between Abraham's people and, and Lot's people. And Abraham says to Lot, I don't want there to be any kind of strife, so you pick whatever land you want and go there. So Lot decides that it really looks good uh, over there by uh, the Jordan Valley, all right, and uh, where Sodom and Gomorrah are. And he decides that's where I'm going to go, okay? That's where I'm going to go. Now, we said last time, we might wonder, you know, if you've ever been to Israel, why would anybody want to go there? Well, you have to remember, it was before the uh, judgment on, on uh, Sodom. And so, evidently, it was a very beautiful uh, area, that, that part of the Jordan Valley, before the judgment on Sodom and, and Gomorrah. In fact, it's likened to the garden, it says the, the garden of the Lord, the garden of Eden, you know? So it was a beautiful place, and that's where Lot goes. And then uh, God says to Abraham, I should say this, remember what we said, that Abraham had the, he did not have to do that. He could have said to Lot, hey, I'm older than you, I'm your uncle, God made the blessing with me, so you, you take your cattle and your people and you go find someplace. It's a big world out there, you know? So you go find someplace else. But that's not what he does. He shows deference, and he says, you go. You take what you want. And then God blesses Abraham again. He like reiterates the blessing. He says, look to the north and the south and the east and to the west. All the land is yours. And that's where we end in chapter 13. So now the next thing we read now is uh, about this war that's taking place in the land. Now Abraham doesn't own any, uh, well he owns a little piece of the land, right? Well actually he doesn't uh, own it yet, <laughs> That comes later on. So he's dwelling in the land. God has given it to him, but he has not, 
he certainly has not possessed all of this land. Okay, so what's taking place? This is still the land of the Canaanites and the Perizzites and, and all those ites, right? Uh, and so then we read, we read now, And it came about in the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar. Shinar. Now what's interesting about that, there is no time frame for that. We have no idea exactly what that means. Because we only know days in the Bible at this point in relationship to Abraham. We don't know what are the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar. Well, evidently he was a contemporary of Abraham. But he was over there in Babylon. Remember, Shinar is Babylon. And this is on the first line of chapter 14 to kind of, kind of uh, tell us that foreigners, that this is a war beyond the boundaries of Canaan. Shinar is all the way on the, on the other side of the world, in a way, on the other side of the desert, right, by the Euphrates River, okay? So it came about in the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Ariok, king of Elasar, Keder Lemor, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goyim. Now, you read in any good commentary, and any good commentary will tell you that nobody knows exactly where all these places are. But they're out there. The one thing we do know is Shinar, okay? That they made war against Bera, king of Sodom, and with Birsha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, and Shemever, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zor. We've heard of those places because those places are kind of in the vicinity, in the vicinity of, of Canaan. So we see that you have these, um, these nations from the east, and then you have these nations that are close to, they're basically city-states. They weren't like nations with a capital and lots of other places around them. They were basically like city-states around Canaan. All these came as allies to the valley of Sidim, that is the Salt Sea. And now it says the Salt Sea so that we would know what it's, you know, what it's talking about, okay? Twelve years they had served Kedolemor, but the thirteenth year they rebelled. So evidently, Sodom and Gomorrah were like vassal states of this uh, Kedolemor. And in the fourteenth year, Kedolemor and the kings that were with him came and defeated the Rephaim in Ashtaroth, Keraim, and the Zuzim in Ham, and the Emim in Shavakiriathaim, and the Horites in their Mount Seir, as far as El Paran, which is by the wilderness. So what's interesting, you know, in mentioning that even, well, it could go on. Then they turned back and came to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and conquered all the country of the Amalekites and all the Amorites who lived in Hazazon Tamar. And the king of Sodom and the king of Gomorrah and the king of Admon, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zor, came out and they arrayed for battle against them in the valley of Sidim, against Kedolemor, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goyim, and Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Ariah, king of Elasar, four kings, uh, four kings against them. Now the valley of Sidim was full of tar pits, and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, and they fell into them. But those who survived fled to the hill country. Then they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah, 
and all their food supply and departed. One of the things that we uh, observe about this is that it is obsessed with the names of geographical locations and not so much about what they did to each other or describing any battles, but we're to, we're to get out of this that the land was being fought over, right? And remember that the land plays this huge role, the land that God gives to Abraham, look to the north, the south, the east, and the west, and, and the land where uh, Lot finds you know, his, his home, that uh, there is much, uh, much ado about, about the land. And one of the things that, we're, that we understand from all these named places, while we don't know exactly where they are, we know that Abraham is sort of somewhere in all this. We know where he is. He's in Hebron. He's in Hebron. Right? And somehow he and the people that have identified themselves with him are, are not part of the battle. That for whatever reason, God has spared them this, uh, the, the, the battle. And one could say the war is going on all around them. All around them. But not exactly where, where they are. And so we can say that God brings protection to Abraham and those who are with him. Now... Regarding these nations that came against Sodom and Gomorrah, Kedolemor and company, and they took Lot, Abram's nephew, and his possessions, and departed, for he was living in Sodom. Okay. Uh, and so we see that uh, Lot is in trouble. Lot is in trouble. Then a fugitive came and told Abram, the Hebrew, and by the way, that's the first place in the Bible where we read the word Hebrew. And as we once learned in a great mini-course taught by uh, Dr. Sam Meyer, that the word Hebrew is used almost always, especially in the Torah, in connection to foreign people and nations who are identifying the, you know, uh, the Jewish people or you know, Abraham and his descendants. And so... Uh, uh, very interesting. So a fugitive came and, and told Abram the Hebrew. Now he was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol, and brother of Aner, and they were allies with him, which literally means they were in covenant with, with Abram. And so one of the things we learn there is the people that are in covenant with Abraham are with him and are, are sort of under the umbrella and blessing of Abram. And the people that are not, are not under the blessing of Abram. And Lot, by separating himself and going to Sodom, had sort of separated himself from his uncle and from the blessing uh, of Abram. And when Abram heard that his relative, his nephew, had been taken captive... He led out his trained men, born in his house, 318, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them as far as Hobah, which is north of Damascus. And he brought back all the goods, and he brought back his relative Lot with his possessions and also the women and the people. So this is, we learn a lot about Abraham here. He was a force to be reckoned with. 
uh, he, uh, he, was, he did not possess all the land of Canaan. And not only was he wealthy, but he functioned like a king with, with, uh, you know, with, with the men who served as like the, the army. And the way that this is written, it's written just as if Abram was indeed a king and sent out his trained men and, and they split up and this is where they went. They had a strategy, they had a they uh, pursued them in, in, a, in a certain way. It wasn't just like Abraham and his ragtag team of, uh, of guys out there. You know what I mean? It was uh, an organized uh, army. Now, notice the number, 318. May I suggest that that's not a lot of people, given this army of different cities that, uh, that he had to fight against, Right? Doesn't it kind of remind you a little bit of Gideon, you know, and a, a small number of fighters, and the, the goal was just to recognize that God is the one who's getting the victory and not you, right? Very important. That, that God, again, just like we're talking about here, right? Uh, it's God, God is the one who raises people up. God is the one who gets the victory. God is the one who assumes full responsibility for a life wholly yielded to him. It's all about the Lord, all about the Lord. And, um, and so we, we see that as we read this text. And isn't it interesting how far, how far they go? They're in Hebron, which is like in the negative. And Dan is all the way up at the top, right? And by the way, it's so interesting the way this is written. Some of this had to have been written by people who lived uh, a little bit later. Does anybody know why? There was no Dan yet. There was no place, there was no tribal allotment of Dan in Abraham's day, right? Uh, you got to read Joshua, <laughs> the book of Joshua, which comes uh, a long time later. So it's kind of interesting. But in order so that we would know where these places are located, you know? So he goes all the way to the top and then beyond Damascus. That is far. That is a far walk. And, and so this took some time. Uh, to unfold. And Abram and his forces are successful, we learn. And they retrieve Lot, of course, and his family, and the, the women and the people, the tents, as we talked about last time, and, 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 and all, that, all that he had. So, so Abram is victorious, and he has evidently, he has uh, liberated Sodom. He has liberated the people of the people of, of Sodom. Okay? And so as was the custom in that day, that when a, uh, when a victorious king would come, he would, have, uh, he would have booty with him. You know, he would have uh, the, victor, the victory, uh, uh, the fruits of victory, you know. He would have the, the fruits of victory uh, with him. And, uh, and we see here, then after the defeat, in verse 17, of Kedolemor and the kings who were with him. See, isn't it something? Abram defeated all these kings and, and liberated uh, Sodom and Gomorrah and these other places. The king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shava, that is the king's valley. Okay? Now, I want us to notice something before we continue. Okay, keep your finger there in verse 17, and now go down to verse 21. 
So I'm going to read verse 17 again, and then I'm going to read immediately after that verse 21, 22, 23, and 24. Then after his return from the defeat of Kedolemor and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is, the king's valley. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give the people to me and take the goods for yourself. Uh, and Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have sworn to the Lord God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take a thread or a sandal thong or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing except what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me on their Eshkol Mamre and let them take their, take their share. All Abram wanted was Lot and what he wanted to retrieve. And he did not want anything from this horribly wicked pagan uh, Sodom. He did not want anything from him other than, you know, food that the, that the men have eaten. That's all that they, that's all that he wants. He doesn't want a, a sandal thong or anything that is his. He doesn't want to become indebted to the king of Sodom. He doesn't want to be identified with the king of Sodom. He doesn't want the king of Sodom to enter into some kind of triangular uh, relationship where he says, well, you know, with somebody else saying, well, you know, Abram and I, we're on the same page. Abram didn't want to, did not want to identify with the king of Sodom. Okay? So first, we need to get that. Okay? That Abram does not want to identify with the king of Sodom. But isn't it also interesting, the way the text is written, that you don't need verses 18, 19, and 20 to actually have this, this uh, narrative. Without, chapter, without verses 18, 19, and 20, we would learn everything that we've learned so far. And uh, the chapter could very well end. And we move right on. But it doesn't work that way. And I would suggest that the reason that verses 18, 19, and 20 are where they are, and not after. Now, another thing we could say is, well, you know, verses 18 and 19 and 20, where it talks about Melchizedek, it could have been tacked on to the end. It could have been after verse 24. But I would suggest that the way it's written is trying to tell us something. Just the way it's written. Not only what's written, but the way it's written. That it's interjected. Now, that doesn't mean it's added later. That doesn't mean that it's inserted by somebody after this whole thing was completed in order to make some kind of different point. It doesn't mean that. But it means the way that Moses wrote it out is so that, we, so that verses 18, 19, and 20 is kind of like um, highlighted, not an afterthought. But right in the middle of this, we read about Melchizedek. And also, we cannot help but contrast Melchizedek and the king of Sodom, just by reading it. Because we see something about the king of Sodom, then we read about Melchizedek, then we read about the king of Sodom again. So if you're reading it, you can't help but be thinking about the contrast of Melchizedek and the king of Sodom. So now let's read verses 18, 19, and 20. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now he was a priest of the Most High God. Well, and we can stop there. What? How could that be? All right. Now, first of all, some people have answered that question of what, how can that be? 
by making all kinds of assumptions about Melchizedek that is not necessary and are not in the text and, and kind of changes the text around. For example, and I may be stepping on some toes. That's okay. I'll run away fast after. And that is, Melchizedek was a real person. Okay, Melchizedek was a real person. He, this is not some pre-incarnate version of Yeshua. Or else, or else the book of Hebrews wouldn't even make any sense. Not only that, but if, if you're reading it, if we take it on its own terms, then the king of Sodom must be. Is the king of Sodom then? Is he, uh, oh, I get it. He must be Satan. See? If Melchizedek is God, then the king of Sodom must be Satan. Then who's Abraham? Maybe he's an angel. You get the point, right? We get the point, right? So all these other kings are real people. Melchizedek is a real person. Not only that, not only is he a real person, but on your own, you can read in uh, Joshua chapter 10, in verse 1, about another king of Jerusalem, you know, uh, uh, the, the king of the Jebusites, and he had a similar kind of name, right? So evidently, the kings of Salem... Jebus, or Jerusalem, uh, had similar kinds of names, all right? By the way, in Joshua 10.1, it's Adonai Tzedek, Adonai Tzedek, and he's a real person, and so Machi Tzedek is also a real person, and because he's a real person, it brings out a tr some tremendous and marvelous truths that we miss otherwise, Okay? Now, you know, in, uh, according to our ancient, uh, the, the rabbis, they, all, they, they did not view him as uh, a god, but you know who they viewed him as? They thought he was a, um, a Shem. This is Shem. This is the son, of, uh, the son of Noah, Shem. Because there's something outrageous about this king. And, of course, from the point of view of our ancient rabbis, how can it be somebody who's not related to Abraham? See? So they go backwards and say it's, it's, uh, it, it must be like a Shem come to life again. But let's just take it for what it is. He's, his name is Melchizedek, and he's the king of Salem. Okay? Uh, and so he uh, meets uh, Abram on the road, and the first thing he does is he brings out bread and wine. So that tells us something right there. He brings out bread and wine. There is some kind of kesher, as we would say, you know, in, in Hebrew. Some kind of kesher, some kind of relationship. So there's something about Abram that Melchizedek recognizes that they have some, maybe something in common. We would call it today fellowship. They have a, a joint relationship with God. It's what they have. They have a joint relationship with God. Melchizedek is a priest of God Most High. And isn't it interesting that when Abram is speaking to the king of Sodom, he refers to God in the same way. The, the king, God, God Most High. Uh, and, uh, of course, uh, we see that he is a priest of the Most High God. That uh, evidently, besides Abraham, there was at least this man... This king, who was a king and a priest of, the, of God, of Hashem, of the God of Israel, but not 
uh, uh, not, an, uh, not an Israelite. Okay? So this is, uh, this is quite amazing because we read and it says, And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High. Right? So, of God Most High. Of God Most High. Melchizedek is a priest of God Most High. Abraham is of God Most High. They had this fellowship. They had this relationship with God. We don't know anybody else yet that has that, but, but except Melchizedek and Abram. And they, ha- they, share, they share the bread and the wine. Isn't it interesting? It just kind of is a, a type or a picture of, you know, when we, when we talk about Messiah's table and, and we're sharing the fellowship that we have with, with God, we're participating together, you know? And so it's just kind of a... a, a it kind of brings that to mind, sort of a, a type or, or a picture, but certainly of the, of the fellowship that Abram has with uh, Machi Tzedek, with um, uh, the king of Salem. Now, by the way, Salem is uh, believed to be where uh, Jerusalem, where Jerusalem uh, is, okay? All right. So then we see, uh, notice what um, uh, Machi Tzedek says. Blessed be him. And blessed be Abram, he blessed him and said, blessed be Abraham of God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. So, uh, Machitzedek recognizes that, this, that God is the one and only God. This was highly unusual in that day. Machitzedek, the king of Salem, knows the God of Israel, the one and only God. And he understands that Abram did not win this battle, did not bring Lot back, did, did not liberate Sodom and Gomorrah because he was smarter than everybody else, but because it was God Most High who did it. And that's what Machitzedek is, is, in a sense, affirming upon Abram, affirming upon him, blessing him. And isn't it interesting, of course, that we go back in chapter 12, Abram shall be a blessing, I will bless those who bless you, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Remember, we've talked about that, about this, uh, this issue of God's desire to bless. And here we see this concept of mutual blessing here. Uh, Abram liberates uh, you know, the, the cities, and now this king blesses Abram. This king blesses Abram. And, uh, and so we see, and blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand, right? So Machitzedek has a very good theology, right? He knows that there's only one God of heaven and earth and that uh, this God is not only the God of Salem, but he's the God of Abraham and he's the God of everywhere. Uh, and his sovereignty reaches even beyond Damascus. And then we read, and he gave him a tenth of all. Now, we are very fortunate to have the book of Hebrews in the Brit Chadashah because it's hard to tell, actually, from the verse itself, who's giving who the tithe, right? He gave him a tenth of all. Did, did Machitzedek give him a tenth of all, or did Abram give a tenth of all? Well, I will say that universally, I, everyone holds. Jewish scholars, Christian scholars, this is a great area of agreement that Abram gave 
Machi Tzedek, uh, the, the part, a portion of the booty, a portion of, the, of, of what he had retrieved, okay? Uh, and so no need to uh, really dwell on that, unless you really like dwelling on that, okay? Uh, and, uh, and then, uh, and then, there, then, then the, the passage returns back to the king of Sodom. So you have the king of Sodom, and you have the king of Salem. And that's kind of interesting, too. The king of Sodom and the king of uh, uh, Shalem, right? Sodom and Shalem. It's very interesting, right? So the king of Sodom says, uh, you know, I'll take the people, you take the goods. The king of Salem doesn't do any of that whatsoever. The king of Salem blesses him, has fellowship with him, blesses him because he is a king and a priest of God. And that is what a king and a priest of God does. He blesses Abram. And then Abram recognizes that uh, Malchi Tzedek is uh, someone above him and he gives him a tithe. He, he gives him the booty. Now, Later on uh, in the Bible, in, first of all, in Psalm 110, in Psalm 110, it's the only place we read about uh, Malchi Tzedek again, right? And in Psalm 110, uh, that is a messianic psalm. And, and so what we see, uh, interestingly, is that by the time you get to the days that the psalms were being, these psalms were written, Malchi Tzedek was... He was a, a mysterious, who is this person? And so he becomes a type of a Messiah, a type of Messiah, right? Uh, it says in Psalm 110, in the, in the Tanakh, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make thine enemies a footstool for thy feet. The Lord will stretch forth thy strong scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of thine enemies. This is a messian speaking of, of the Messiah. The people will volunteer freely in the day of thy power, in holy array from the womb of the dawn. Thy youth are to thee as the dew. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Well, what does that mean? That this Messiah is a king and a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Well, what I would suggest is, is that basically the Messiah, according to Psalm 110, the, ki the Messiah is a king and a priest. I, I, one who not only is a king and, and rules over all, but is, is, is the spiritual, is the spiritual, um, the spiritual leader. And also, and very importantly, that the priesthood comes directly from God. And that's what's so important that we learn here uh, as a type of Messiah is that Melchizedek is a priest, but he's a priest before there are Israelite priests. There are no Israelite priests yet. Sometimes we view the Bible as like this flat earth while our time like doesn't matter. There, priests were not raised up yet. Okay, So here you have... A, uh, a, I mean, a group of people called priests, okay? So here, long before that happens, here is a priest that God makes a priest, not from the tribe of Levi, not in the, the Israelite slash Jewish natural order of things, okay? He's unusual in that way.
Okay? And then, interestingly, is that his dominion goes beyond the borders of, uh, of Israel, beyond the border of, uh, of Abraham. And that's exactly what Psalm 110 uh, uh, tells us. And, and you have to remember that Psalm 110 is in the Tanakh. Uh, this is not the, the Brit Harashah. This is not yet uh, acknowledging uh, uh, Yeshua yet. This is in Psalm 110. So if we continue there, after it says that thou art a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek, the Lord is at thy right hand. He will shatter kings in the days of his wrath. He will judge among the nations. He will fill them up with corpses. He will shatter the chief men over a broad country. He will drink from the brook of the wayside. Therefore, he will lift up his head. The point being is that his power is over all the earth. His power is over all the earth. An unusual priest. That's what the order of Melchizedek means. An unusual priest, not descended from uh, Levi. Okay? One who is a king and a priest. Right? All right. Well, you know, it's interesting that um, in the uh, book of Zechariah, in the sixth chapter, you read in verses 12 and 13, again, a messianic statement. Say to him, thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, a man whose name is Branch, for he will branch out from where he is, and he will build the temple of the Lord. Yes, it is he who will build the temple of the Lord, and he who, who will bear the honor and sit and rule on his throne. Thus he will be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace will be between the two offices. Another, another messianic statement about the, about the Messiah being a king and a priest. Again, reminding us of Machitzedek. And then, of course, you know, I'll just say this very quickly. In the Dead Sea community, uh, Machitzedek uh, took on superhuman characteristics. And many people, when you get to the first century, many Jewish people understood Machitzedek to be like this this supernatural figure, almost like, you know how, what happens to Elijah over time? You know how Elijah is a, is a prophet? But in Jewish lore, in rabbinic literature, Elijah is like a messiah. Elijah saves the day. Elijah does this. Elijah is like superhuman, Elijah. That's kind of what happens to Machitzedek. And so I will say that the writer of the book of Hebrews written to Jewish believers in the, in the Brit Hadashah to help Jewish believers understand how Yeshua is greater, is like the fulfillment of what Moses was looking for, of what the priests were looking for, and that he is supreme, that the Messiah of Israel is supreme, we read uh, here about uh, Machitzedek, and we read a little bit of a commentary on Genesis chapter 14. And basically, what we read there is that Yeshua is like Machitzedek. Okay? Uh, and Yeshua is like Machitzedek uh, because uh, he is a king and a priest, because the way it's written, he's not descended from Levi. There's no genealogy. Okay? 
no genealogy. When it says without father and mother, without genealogy, without father and mother means there's no genealogy. You got to read the third phrase. Okay? That's what it means. It doesn't mean he literally didn't have a father and a mother. It means there's no genealogy there. He's not descended from Levi. Okay? And then, of course, uh, he says this again. If you read in verse 6, he says, But the one whose genealogy is not traced uh, from them collected a tenth from Abraham. So the point that the writer of the book of Hebrews is making is that Yeshua is in the order of Malchizedek because he's not from the tribe of Levi. Okay, he's from the kingly tribe of Judah. He seemingly comes out of nowhere. And read the Gospels carefully. And you see that the entire Sanhedrin and just about everybody could not figure out who Yeshua is. He kind of came out of nowhere. Kind of like Malchizedek. Okay? And then Abram gives him a tithe. And the writer of Hebrews uses that to show that you see... Abraham acknowledges Malchizedek as greater. And so we need to acknowledge Yeshua as greater. See? And that's what's, that's what's being said. So it's very interesting that uh, from that passage in Genesis chapter 14, we see on its own terms this relationship of the king of Sodom and the king of Salem to Abram. And Abram identifies indeed with the king of Salem that they had fellowship one with the other, as evidenced by the bread and, and, the, and the wine. And the king of Salem blesses, blesses uh, Abram. And so one lesson, real quickly, one lesson is, we have here this seed of the relationship of Israelites and non-Israelites who know the Lord. Isn't that interesting? All the way back here in Genesis chapter 14, Israelites and non-Israelites, Jews and non-Jews, who relate together because of the God Most High, because of their relationship of the God Most High. Secondly, Abram identifies with the godly king and not with the ungodly king. And we need to have that kind of discernment as well in our own lives of who do we relate to. Do we, do we relate to people of Machitzenek or do we relate to the people like of Sodom? And we have to have that kind of discernment. Abram was a man of God who walked with God. And we see by this understanding of, of how he related to these two kings. And then finally, it all, as we just said, it points to, the king, to king Messiah. To King Messiah who is a priest. To King Messiah who is a king and a priest. And we know from the Brit Hadashah that this is indeed Yeshua. And so therefore we need to uh, relate not to the king of Sodom or to, to, may I say, the kings of this world, but to our king, Messiah, a type of Melchizedek. And may we have our fellowship with him. And may we not look to the kings of this world, no matter who the kings of this world are, for our well-being. And then finally, isn't it something what we see about Abram? Abraham saves Lot. Abraham saves the day. And so we see that uh, Abram saves Lot and he's blessed by the king of Salem. And so, very good. Let us uh, think about those things as we go to the Lord and pray. Lord, thank you, God, for uh, this lesson today.
and, uh, and God, we pray that we, might, um, that we might really be able to identify with this text and that we might really appreciate the one who came like Melchizedek, and that is Yeshua. Lord, I pray, God, that we would have our fellowship with him and that we would find blessing in him, uh, Lord. And uh, God, may we give a portion of all that we have to our King, to our Messiah, even you know, in, in all that uh, you have given to us. And we thank you and we pray in Messiah's name. Amen.